And there were times that I didn't know if I was still a Buddhist. I didn't know if I still had a practice. You know, what I did have was the question of how to face the suffering that I saw with a compassion that could become genuinely impartial. In other words, a compassion that extended not only to the babies who were being killed and the people who were being shot and the activists who were being tortured, but also to the delusions and suffering of the people who were doing, performing these atrocities. Beth Kanji Goldring began practicing Japanese Zen in 1979 and became a student of Maureen Stewart Roshi in 1982. Following her lay ordination in 1986, Beth moved to Palestine, working as a human rights activist for the next seven years. After returning to the U.S., she spent a year at Harvard Radcliffe's Bunting Institute before taking full ordination in 1995. Beth began working with the International Network of Engaged Buddhists in Thailand and then moved to Cambodia in 1996, inspired by Mahagosananda. In the year 2000, she founded Brahmavihara Cambodia, a Buddhist chaplaincy organization to provide emotional and spiritual support for destitute AIDS patients and their families, which she ran until the end of 2016. In addition to Zen, Beth has also studied Tibetan Tonglen with Alan Wallace, and beginning in 2003, Vipassana with Gil Fransdahl. She received full authorization as a teacher from Gil in 2017. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code Sit, breathe, bow, all one word. So Beth, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of background about how you moved from the world of academia into the world of living your life as, a, as an ordained Buddhist nun, a, a chaplain. You'd been employed at a university, you were working on your PhD, uh, and then you started practicing Zen, and it seemed like there was a new opening for you. Yeah, I tried to go straight. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody kept saying, just finish your PhD, and you know, you'll be fine, you can do whatever you want. And I kept rewriting it and not finishing it. And finally, when I was studying with Maureen uh, in 1982, on retreat, I realized that I wasn't failing to finish. 
I was refusing to finish, and that was an important refusal because the path that was opening to me as an academic was not where I belonged. Um, so within six months, I was doing human rights work, volunteering at Amnesty. Later, I was volunteering at the American Friends Service Committee in their Middle East program. And then I got the opportunity to go to Palestine, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go for a couple of years, and I'll be a much better organizer when I come back. Um, so it was also an appropriate time to take Jukai, which is lay ordination in the Zen tradition. And I did that, and Maureen was really, really happy with that. And then I trundled off to Palestine and say, stayed seven years and <laughs> never looked back. So what was your what was your practice like in Palestine? Just out of curiosity, how did that impact the work that you were doing? Enormously difficult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, twice I went to sit with the Israeli practitioners who were in Jerusalem, and they were not pleased to have me hmm. since I was working with the Palestinians and. So I didn't do much of that. Um, my practice became very much off the cushion with Maureen's support because there was no community on the cushion. It was very painful to be the only Buddhist in the West Bank. <laughs> mm. So um, until that time, I had done a lot of on the cushion stuff. And what happened is that my practice became very much a question of ethical koans in the face of repression, in the face of difficulties, in the face of immense suffering. And I had Maureen's support for all that. Um, until she died in 1990, and then I was on my own. And there were times that I didn't know if I was still a Buddhist. I didn't know if I still had a practice. You know, what I did have was the question of how to face the suffering that I saw with a compassion that could become genuinely impartial. In other words, a compassion that extended not only to the babies who were being killed and the people who were being shot and the activists who were being tortured, but also to the delusions and suffering of the people who were doing, performing these atrocities. Mm. It was really hard. And it was very hard... Um, I want to say something that's a little controversial, but <laughs> suffering on the whole, and especially oppression, doesn't tend to make people better. It tends to make people worse. We know that on the personal level, when we see battered children grow up to either become batterers if they're boys or become battered if they're girls. You know, we see abused children grow up to be abusers. We see these patterns, and yet there's this myth that says, 
oh, you know, suffering ennobles us. Well, if suffering ennobled us, we would have no reason to alleviate mm -hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the painful things was watching deterioration in both communities because of the infliction of suffering and the experience of suffering. And one of the things, and this I learned in Palestine, that's very important about Buddhism is its capacity to turn the experience of injustice into an experience of suffering. Injustice and oppression are really intractable ethically. You know, they tend to create rage, they tend to create repression, they tend to create all kinds of things. Suffering is workable. I mean, that's what the Buddha said. He said, I teach suffering and I teach the path out mm -hmm. of suffering. So that by being able to see it as suffering, we become able to see the possibility of transformation. Um, my teacher, Gil, <laughs> is fond of saying about the third noble truth, that it's the good news. There really is a path out yeah, of yeah. suffering. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, am fond of saying, yes, and the bad news is the fourth noble truth, which is how yeah. hard it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's not entirely bad news, and it's especially not entirely bad news because it's not a zero-sum game. You don't have to become totally enlightened. Every single bit of movement towards compassion, towards openness, you know, releases suffering, moves us toward wholeness, and moves our actions in the world away from suffering, away from the infliction of harm. So every little bit counts. Mm. And that's the, to me, that's the really, really, really good news. Because for those of us who do not expect to become perfectly enlightened Buddhas in this lifetime, it's nice to know that some improvement matters. Yeah. <laughs> so trying to develop a compassion that included compassion for the oppressor was a major koan for me. Absolutely major. And it was not theoretical. It was as visceral as getting to a checkpoint and, you know, arguing with a soldier so some, you know, old woman could get to the hospital for desperately needed medical treatment. So you came back to the United States after seven years in Palestine and <laughs> <laughs> were, you were given a, a, I don't know if it was a fellowship or, or what? No, it was, it was, it was a think tank for, at this, I think now they take men. At that point, it was a think tank for mid-career women. Okay. And it was hideously prestigious. <laughs> and I, of course. <laughs> so here I am coming from villages under curfew and Gaza, God help us, into this, you know, totally privileged, gorgeous, environment mm. 
and to a country which was they 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 tell you about six months in that the culture shock coming back is much worse than the culture shock right. going because it looks familiar but you've changed at deeper levels and it's changed at deeper levels yeah. what i'm talking about is why i really couldn't wait to get out of the u.s again <laughs> right so you you took a, a job with the international network of engaged buddhists in thailand yep and you know that was another kind of culture shock because southeast asia is so different from palestine mm. and you know fortunately after about seven months uh i came to cambodia on the peace walk so I came over here. Thailand was an enormously successful place. You know, so they didn't need me. Mm. <laughs> so I came over to Cambodia and we're walking, you know, the roads at that point were not paved, including the major roads. There were three paved streets in Phnom Penh. Mm. Bomb craters were in the middle of the road we were walking on. Oh wow. You know, I kind of looked around at the destitution and the war damage and the illness and the rest of it. And I said, gee, this is my kind of town. Hmm. <laughs> so I <Yeah>. moved here. <laughs> you know, I could see how there was space for me to work when I left Palestine. I knew there was stuff that I needed to learn for myself that I wasn't learning there. And I had been in Cambodia almost a year when I realized different societies have different sort of fundamental ideal values. Like in America, we value independence. And in, Cam in Palestine, they value courage. In Cambodia, they value kindness. Hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is what I need to learn. This is why Maha is so incredibly powerfully inspiring. Because it's about kindness. And I'm not saying that any of us live up to these values necessarily. It's just kind of a, a cultural direction. And I thought how lucky I was to have landed here because it was my chance to learn kindness. Mm. And yeah, so the important thing about human rights work is to base it on what people themselves value, not on your idea of what, because the human rights conventions are huge. You know, there's so much in them that what you do with them needs to be grounded in how people are suffering and what it is that they need. So, you know, I came in 96. In 99, I generated this idea for a project. I'd been given a mandate from an organization in Hong Kong to look at healthcare for the poor and how Buddhism could help the poor. And they came together around the question of AIDS. We were the fastest growing epidemic in the region and maybe the world at the time. The projections were horrible. It was unthinkable that anybody would ever get antiretroviral medication. 
life, life expectancy from diagnosis was six months to a year. There were more than 20, I mean, it was just, you know, I can roll out statistics, but you're getting the picture. And the place where I found to work was actually by accident. I was going out with Mary Knoll, Catholic uh, missionary organization that doesn't convert people unless they really want to. Hmm. <laughs> and that designs, I mean, Mary Knoll wrote the book on grassroots work. Um, anyway, I was going out with them to visit AIDS patients, and I happened to chant with someone. And his mother said to me the next day, you know, that helped him so much because he's a, he believes he has AIDS because of his kama. And we don't have money for the monks, so he is terrified that his next life, he has been terrified that his next life is going to be even worse. Oh. And I thought, okay, in this whole huge picture of AIDS, I'm actually competent to address this. Huh. <laughs> you know, um, this is not necessary. <laughs> so you started a, a Buddhist so, chaplaincy organization. Yeah, I started going in the hospital with my translator and, and hanging out with people and being kind and loving them. The first year, the most important thing I did was kiss people. Mm. <laughs> they would say, they would say, you know, my family never visits, but, you know, she comes in and she, and if they visit, they would say, they sit all the way across the room from me, but she sits on my bed and she hugs me and she kisses mm. me. And, you know, people really do respond a lot. Yeah. Uh, especially when they're terrified and especially when they're dying. You know, the underlying thing here was, was kind of simple. Um, people believe that they are outside the Buddhist compassion because they're poor, because they have AIDS, because they blame it on themselves. You know, blaming it on their karma is actually a relief. But it's terrifying. And, you know, so the whole purpose of the project was to get people, to facilitate people's getting it, that they are at the heart of the Buddhist compassion. They're not way out there on the edges. They're right at the center of it. And it's different from the Catholic option for the poor because in Buddhism, every suffering is at the heart of the compassion. So that it's not that it's privileged in that way, but it is there, you know. And so we just loved people, you know, that's what we did. And then over the years it grew and we did lots of other things and antiretrovirals came in and people started living and then they had to adjust to living and, you know, lots and lots of things happened over 17 years. And my staff was wonderful. I started with a translator and then we picked up a lady who had 
her son had died and we'd been very close to them. And she used to yell at me for everything I did wrong. So we hired her. <laughs> and we gave her training as a nun. And, you know, we sent her to nun school. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so we had someone who was actually in the Cambodian tradition. And then we added more people as we were able to. And then we, my staff, I mean, we were able to begin to help materially. We were begin to, when antiretrovirals came in and people had to make the transition from dying to living again. That's a very hard transition. It's a terrible transition when you've almost died repeatedly, you've lost a spouse, you've lost children, you know, and you've been facing your own death. And all of a sudden you have to have a life again. And in the early years of antiretrovirals, I mean, people know this in the States because it happens a lot with people who are seriously wounded in war and have to build their lives again. Um, you know, and people saw lots of ghosts and we learned how to deal with ghosts and, you know, all kinds of exciting things. So tell me about your, your practice through all of this. Like, how did this develop? How did it guide your work as a chaplain? Where were you? Okay. Um, I mean, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, we, you know, I hadn't gone to any chaplaincy schools and actually it probably wouldn't have helped me. But, um, so you Gil met Gil was by this wonderful. Point. And, oh yeah, no, I met Gil in 98 when my friend was sitting with him and I asked him to be my teacher in 2003. I had been going during the Khmer New Year holiday in April I'd been going to this walk where they built me a kuti on the top of the mountain and having, you know, some recovery time. And I took along Gil's book, uh, The Issue at Hand, and I found that I recovered so much better. So I got off the mountain and I wrote him and I wrote him about some problems. And he said, these are things that need to be resolved in retreat with the teacher. And he was having a retreat in September. So I went. And in the middle mm. of it, I asked him to be my teacher. <laughs> but Gil was, has always been incredibly generous, incredibly magnificent, amazingly calm in the face of my turmoil. Um, I can't begin to speak about how grateful I am to him. And Gil used to say, um, I wouldn't keep you at this any longer than I thought it was good for you, but it is mm. your monastery. <laughs> so there I was, and the first years were very, very hard indeed. And then there was a sea change. Uh, I learned Reiki after the first year because I was doing so much massage and people said to do it, and I learned Reiki and the patients adored it. And then after a few years, I became a Reiki master and I could teach my staff. My staff was growing at that point. Anyway, it was around 2003 or maybe four. And I was in this hideous slum with a woman who was very close to death um, on her bed. 
you know, mud floor, rats all over the place, walls you could punch through. Um, and I was doing Reiki with her. And all of a sudden, you know, her head, I mean, her head was on my lap. And, and all of a sudden, it wasn't me doing Reiki with her. It was the two of us being held in some kind of boundless, boundless compassion. And it was like a miracle. And from that point, I got it about life affirming. Mm. Because it was, it was totally real to me that it didn't matter about anything else at that moment. And this is not mm -hmm. an excuse mm -hmm. for not feeding people. <laughs> Um, what mattered at that moment was the thing that was holding the both of us. And over time, I grew to know that I could go into a room where someone was suffering and I could begin to work with them and I could expect whatever that was to take over and to hold what was happening. And that was, we were, it was such a privilege to have that experience. It's just incomparable to be held in that way by forces that are so much deeper and so much more profound and so much more truly compassionate than anything we can envision. And that's, you know, that's how, that's, that's, that was my practice. My practice was learning that. My practice was being able to move into living that. And now, since I don't have the project for the last two years, I kind of wander around a bit like a lost sheep, wondering, you know. <laughs> no retirement for you. It's... <laughs> well, I'm too old to go to another right. country and start over. So, you know, I did some teaching here. I'm doing some studying here. It's really nice after all these years to have the time and the intellectual and emotional energy to actually learn about Cambodian Buddhism. Cambodian Buddhism, you know, we do Vipassana, and Vipassana is kind of the Starbucks of meditation. But Vipassana as we know it was formulated at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Yes, it uses textual materials that are as old as the Pali Canon, but it was formulated by people with a very strong sense of the importance of Western science and, you know, with that huge, you know, bias and who dismissed traditional practices as superstitious and ignorant and all the rest of it. And there are now 
wonderful scholars working with those traditional practices. And, you know, as with traditional practices everywhere, once you start to look at them, there is a total wealth and a depth and a richness that is astonishing. So I know that you have led retreats in the United States and and also in Cambodia, where you are now, uh, I think mostly with your staff. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the different texture and teaching style that you had to employ to talk about the Buddhist path of liberation for those two different contexts. My retreat teaching here has been primarily my staff plus some of my Western students. You know, we meditated every day and once a week we did training. And we went through the sort of traditional Theravada syllabus of precepts and then the paramitas. I actually, when I first taught them, I taught the paramitas because I didn't understand the difference between the six Mahayana paramitas <laughs> and the ten paramitas. <laughs> and the Four Noble Truths, and then the Eightfold Path. And then we had this grand time <laughs> with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Um, and the first time we went through that book, I had a very simple goal with them. It took me seven years to learn how to teach them. Because I've always guided my sense of success in teaching by how much I learned when I was mm. teaching a class. And I couldn't do that with my students because if I was learning, I lost them. Mm -hmm. I had to keep my attention very firmly and supportively on where they were in their understandings at every moment and how to clarify the teachings in a way that connected experientially. And that, that was a wonderful training. The other piece of that training had to do with, I mean, you know, as a meditator, I have Olympic gold medals in mm. restlessness and agitation. You know, of the hindrances, I am a real champion at that. My staff, on the other hand, were very clear experts in <laughs> sloth and torpor, in falling asleep. And, you know, I spent a couple of years trying to go through the regular strategies of how you keep people in awakened meditation and what you do. At some point, I had to realize and was able to realize that what was happening was they were coming up against that bedrock of trauma. Mm. And that rather than trying to disturb that, you know, my task was to make them feel safe. So I stopped trying to keep them away. And over time, they actually did sleep less. But it had to be 
infinitely gentle, and I've never been great at gentle. So I had to learn how to do that. And then when I, I started teaching the retreats, I mean, first they went to Goenka, and then the Goenka people said, you can't come because you do Reiki. So I said, okay, we'll have our own retreats. And a couple of friends of mine did them. And, you know, they worked well enough. Um, and then I was ready to start trying. And it was just such a privilege. I mean, it was just so great. <laughs> you know, and we did, I really only did two major ones. One was on the Brahma Baharas. And the last one I did, and I did it just before I had to tell them we were closing, but we did the retreat first, was on the Ten Paramedics. And I had a great translator for that, just brilliant translator. And, you know, these are things, I, I can't tell you how privileged it is to be able to do these things and to be able to make the mistakes and see the mistakes and have the space and time to respond to them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Beth Kanji Goldring encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find some of her Dharma talks at audiodharma.org. And you're welcome to contact her by emailing vipassanaphanompen at gmail.com. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of membership, which includes interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of membership, Simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.